I'm Mike Breen, Public Awareness Officer for the American Mathematical Society, and I'm talking with John Kleinberg, who's in the Departments of Computer Science and Information Science at Cornell University, and we're talking about networks uh, and the math having to do with that. So, John, you're an expert on networks. Uh, can you tell us about networks in general and the, the math that might be associated with them? Well, the powerful thing about networks is that they're a model that comes up any time that you're trying to record the relationships among a set of things. And so I think over the past 10 to 20 years, we've really begun to become aware of the connectedness of the natural world and of the social world. And, and think about how these networks pervade our experience. So we could record the relationships among a set of people into a social network, right? The friendships among people or the way people talk to each other. We could record the relationships among pieces of, of information through things like the World Wide Web. One page links to another, and that then creates a network. We can think about the physical networks in the world, the rail network and the highway network and the, and the power grid, things that have been actually studied for quite a while that are beginning to merge in, into this now interdisciplinary study of, of networks. And we even see it in biological domains. If we think about the connections within the brain or the interactions between components of a cell that form a metabolic network. When you picture a network, you have to think that graph theory is probably involved. Is, is that true? And then are there other areas? Absolutely. So graph theory is, I think, the foundation for our thinking about networks. And of course, graph theory now has a, a rich history that reaches back all, almost 300 years. And it's a, a very appealing branch of mathematics because the questions are very accessible. The results in graphs can actually become quite deep and, and are always very, very elegant. In the current study of networks, in addition to graph theory, one sees a, a big role being played by probability. And that's in part because probabilistic models of networks have turned out to be quite powerful as an abstraction for the way that networks develop. Right. So I look at a big complicated network, I, I like to find a model for how that thing is evolving organically. Because unlike the global airline network, which is in a sense a designed network under constraints, the way the web has evolved, the way the friendship network of the world has, has evolved, producing the world social network, these have been the result of the accumulation of many, many small decisions taken by many, many people. And so it's often useful to model that as an underlying random process in which the presence or absence of any one link may be the result of conceptually a coin flip. But then if we put all those coin flips together, we can begin using theorems from probability to try establishing that certain properties are going to hold with high probability. Or for example, that as a certain property of the network passes a critical transition point, the global structure of the network is going to suddenly change from looking one way to looking another way. You, you talk about these big networks. A surprising thing about them is the small worldness of them. Absolutely. The small world phenomenon is definitely an important property, and it's one of the most robust empirical findings about real networks. The fact that when I look at a real network, a basic property is the distances between nodes in the network. Right? So if I think of a network as being modeled by a graph, it has a set of nodes, and some of them are connected by links, which we'll call edges, then the distance between two nodes is simply the number of steps in the shortest path between them, Right? the minimum number of edges I would need to cross to get from one node to the other. That's the distance. And now I can look at all the distances in, in, in the graph as a whole. And of course, I can build graphs to have any kinds of distances I want. I, I could string out a long path where I could lay the nodes out in, the, in order and have each node disconnect to the one on its left, the one on its right. And then to get from the left end of that graph to the right end would be a very, very long path. That graph has large distances. But graphs in real life, social networks, web graphs, many other domains, tend to have the property that almost all the distances are very small. Right? So in a very short number of steps, I can get between people. So for example, the social network of the world, right, the global friendship network, 
tells the property that between most people there's a very small number of steps. And that's what's become referred to as uh, the small world phenomenon because the idea is that although the world is big at the level of its population, it's small at the level of how many steps it would take for you to get from one person to almost any other. And in addition to this phenomenon, which is kind of interesting that it would develop, there's also a searchability aspect that develops often. Right. What's interesting here is that if we look back to the origins of this phenomenon, where was it first really uh, empirically verified? It's in this very, very creative experiment by Stanley Milgram, a, a very prominent sociologist from the 20th century. So he was often very interested in trying to establish the empirical basis for things that we either took to be common sense or sometimes took to be the opposite of common sense, things that were counterintuitive. And so he was interested in this idea that we're a small number of handshakes away from most other people, right? So pick any other person walking around in, in, in the world, a veterinarian who works for the Norwegian army, right? And it turns out that, you know, you know someone who knows a vet who's traveled to Norway, who knows a friend of that person's, and in a few short steps, you have gone via a chain of friends of that person. He wanted to understand whether this was really true. And so what he did was he picked a collection of volunteers, most of whom were in the cities in Nebraska, and he asked them each to send a letter to a friend of his, uh, an accomplice in the experiment, uh, a stockbroker who lived in Sharon, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston. And the rules were that he's going to give you the stockbroker's name, their address, their occupation, that they were a stockbroker who worked in Boston, uh, and a, a few other personal details. But although you had their name and address, you couldn't just mail them the letter. You had to send it to someone you knew on a first-name basis, a friend of yours, with these instructions, with the goal of getting it to them in as few steps as possible. Right. So essentially lacking access to the kind of data sets that we have now, he was forced to embark on a much more interesting version of the question, which is, He's going to have to tunnel his way from the starting person to the stockbroker and see how many steps it takes. And so in the process, he wasn't finding the shortest path. He was finding the lengths of the paths that these people were actually able to construct. So the punchline of the experiment was that the participation rate was actually quite high, certainly by the standards of experiments of this sort and certainly by the standards of subsequent attempts at replicating this experiment. Roughly 30% of the letters actually reached their destination, and the median number of steps that it took was six, a number that subsequently entered um, pop culture as the six degrees of separation. And so this number six really captured people's imagination. And it's important to remember that this number six came out of this experiment where people actually sent letters to their friends. Now, what grabbed me about this experiment was that it was actually establishing two things. One, it was saying there, these short paths were actually there. But second, it was saying people are actually able to find them, right? That you're told, get this letter to this stockbroker who lives in Sharon, Massachusetts, or this veterinarian who works in the Norwegian army, or whoever this destination is you have no way to visualize what that whole path is going to look like. You really have no way to visualize beyond the first or conceivably the second step of it. And so all you can do is make your best guess as to where you should send the letter. You're going to think, okay, stockbroker in Sharon, Massachusetts. I know some people live in Boston. I know some people live in the suburbs of Boston. I know someone nearby who actually works in the financial services industry. Maybe they'd be a good choice. And you synthesize all that information. You make your best guess and you send them and you're hoping that they're at least somehow geographically or occupationally or socially closer to that person than you were and that you've made progress. And sure enough, when people engage in this, they're actually quite good at collectively building these paths. The paths essentially funnel their, their way inward toward this person, right? They make their way into Massachusetts, into Boston. They make their way into the financial sector. And suddenly you're in among a bunch of people where the chance that someone knows this person has gone up significantly and the path gets completed in smaller steps. So the paths weren't just there. The social network, although it evolved organically, almost randomly, had configured itself to make searching possible. And so an interesting modeling question is, how do we model networks where not just are the paths there, but 
they're findable, right? They have this searchability property. That's John Kleinberg of Cornell University, and he'll begin part two of our interview talking about an interesting property of searchable graphs.